You're in for a treat, listeners. On today's Sound Advice Entrepreneurs Unfiltered, brought to you by Sage, we're talking to Byron Dixon, the man who defied the odds to create the multi-million pound brand Microfresh, an invisible antibacterial treatment that stops your shoes getting stinky and keeps sofas fresh. One of five siblings, Byron was raised on a council estate in Leicester by his single mother, a Jamaican immigrant. At school, he was bored and disruptive, but he loved chemistry. He couldn't afford to go to university, so he dove straight into the industry. This is how he made his way in the world and turned Microfresh into the go-to brand for big names like John Lewis, Next and Adidas. Welcome, Byron. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kate. And I love the title, Entrepreneurs Unfiltered, because I can be very unfiltered. Good. That's exactly why we've asked you onto this episode. We want those raw, honest stories. Um, so, Byron, take us back to the very beginning. I know you grew up on a council estate in Leicester. Tell us a little bit about that experience and some of your earliest influences. Yeah, wow. Okay, so, I mean, our office now is not far from where I grew up. I actually drive past my mum's house most days on the way to the office and she still lives in the same house and she still rings me and says, I need some milk and I need to, anyway, what mums do, right? Uh, but growing up, uh, this was back in the early 80s, um, it was, it, it, when you grow up on a council estate, there's lots of things that you don't know. So that's all you know. So when you get older and you move away and you think, wow, I never knew there was an alternative to this kind of life. So there were lots of things we grew, you know, we were, we, we weren't rich. We didn't have a lot of things. We didn't have fantastic Christmas presents. Um, we probably didn't have the greatest food, but mum did, you know, she did really well for us. She fed us. She ruled with an iron fist, which we now look back and say, you know, that was absolutely needed. Uh, we weren't, you know, we were pretty good children, but kids at that age need a lot of discipline. Um, and it was tough. I went to a very tough school, Mandela, which is not there anymore. We had a very good headmistress, Miss Warren. We had some teachers and we also had, um, again, a lot of discipline. You know, back in the 80s, corporal punishment, you know, it was there, which sounds alien today, which is what, probably 40 years later. Um, but they helped to show, I look back and realise that that's what shaped me to what I am today. And of course, back then, racism was rife, um, you know, and it was nothing like it is today. It was raw and in your face. I don't need to... I don't need to emphasise the sort of things that were said, but you can probably imagine. But it was actually raw and in your face. And it was just something that we just thought was normal. I mean, you must have learned real resilience from an early age then. Did you feel different from your peers? Uh, in a way, yes. So I had friends of all colours. So where I grew up in Leicester, we're Indian, white, uh, black. We had Hindu, Muslim, Sikh. So I grew up learning all the bad words in lots of languages. Uh, and we all kind of just grew up together as a, as a mixed pot. We all stuck up for each other. There was racism, as I say. Um, but what I realised was there weren't many very black faces on TV. Uh, of course, I don't know any black politicians. So anytime there's a black face on TV... We used to say, hey, so-and-so was on TV last night. I can't remember the names of some old comedians um, and musicians. But you just didn't see any. I mean, I wanted to be a table tennis player, which for anybody that's old enough to remember, they will they will understand because one of the few black faces that was successful was Desmond Douglas, who was a table tennis player. So, of course, you naturally want to aspire to be people that look like yourself. Uh, and most of the people wanted to be 
um, you know, engineers or uh, computer scientists or chemists. And I just thought I want to be like Desmond Douglas because he looks like me. So you wanted to be a table tennis player. Um, how then did you discover chemistry? <laughs> well, as a kid, I was, um, and I still am. People, people say Byron's like a child sometimes. Um, I'm excitable. Uh, I think these days, back these days, it's called some form of ADHD, and that's not to denigrate from people that really do have ADHD and actually have a lot of energy. So, when I went to school, although I could do history and geography and English, I just found sitting there with a piece of paper writing was boring. Uh, so then you put a subject in front of me where you can burn things and blow things up and create stuff. And I thought, why would you want to do anything else when you can do this? And also it did, it captured my attention. And I re- I didn't realise until later that it is one of the most complex subjects. So it actually filled my brain, which was not like the other subjects. I just sat there feeling bored. And did the teachers encourage you? Yeah, well, I mean, my teacher, uh, Miss Clark, she... She, she basically said, look, you can get off this council estate because you're good at chemistry. But if you want to carry on messing around, then just you'll be stuck here for the rest of your life. And that was kind of an incentive to me. The, the irony is I went to for the first three years of boys' school and then it mixed to become boys and girls. Uh, and the chemistry teacher from the other side, Miss Barrett, I mean, I think she's been married 30 years now, something else. But I saw her on Saturday night. And she said, you know, we were laughing because she said, I always knew that you could do it. Yeah, they really encouraged you to go for it. But then, of course, I know you couldn't afford to go to university. So what was the what was the path for you? What was the next step? Yeah, well, the path for me and I'm, I, I mean, when I look back, there's some traits in in me as a person that are that are um, consistent. So I'm one of these doers. And I'm not I, when I say that um, I actually just do stuff. So I left school. I went to college and did A-levels. And then I just wrote to ICI or Zeneca, which at the time was the biggest chemical company in the world, and said, have you got a job? And they were in Manchester. They sent me down to their local depot, which was in Loughborough. And that was uh, ICI stroke Zeneca leather division. And so I wrote to them and I saw a job advertised and I got a job there at Loughborough. With a co- the company was called Stahl, but it was Zeneca ICI leather finishes. And I told off to Loughborough. My friends who were living in Leicester doing all their normal, everyday, hoodlum kind of stuff were like, why are you going to Loughborough? It's in the country. But I just wanted the job and it was an international company and that attracted me as well. So I totaled off to Loughborough. I used to get home quite late after catching the train, so I didn't have time to do all that kind of hoodlum stuff that you do at that age. And it took me out of that cycle of, of those sort of people. So, I mean, you then did really well in your early career. So what made you start Microfresh? Because presumably that was a really big risk. You know, suddenly you found a comfortable job. You've got a decent salary. Were you worried about losing it all? <laughs> no, okay. the, uh, there's a, there's a Again, there's a common theme with me is I do get bored. Uh, and even at this age, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but I do get bored. So I was working in Loughborough. I was there for about 12 years. Um, and I got bored and I had a potential, you know, I had a, the world in front of me and I got headhunted by Echo, the shoe company. And they said, here's a job in, in Echo. I thought, try something else. I didn't realize the job was in Denmark. So I accepted the job. And then they said, do you want to fire from East Midlands or London? And I said, where to? And they said to Denmark. And I was like, oh, and I just thought, <laughs> you know what, why not? <laughs> So uh, I, I tootled off to Denmark 
hopefully some of my Echo friends are listening to this at some point. But I had a great time. Four years in Echo, travelled the world. They made me their, what was called their global finishing expert. So any of the, all the shoes in Echo, the way they looked, it was my responsibility because I'm a chemist and I knew about leather by then. And I, I did, I had a great time. I travelled the world. I learnt languages, totally broadened my mind. And, you know, for this kid off a council estate that did chemistry to stop himself getting bored, I now had a career where there was absolutely no chance of getting bored. Fast forward four years later, a lot of Danish tax, um, and I felt the need to come back to England. Uh, so I came back. And again, I did have a great career at Echo. I came back, uh, I started my own business at the advice of Carl Toosby, who was the star, the founder of Echo. Uh, again, a great guy. And we had the same birthday, so we had a lot in common. And he said, listen, Brian, if you go back, that's a shame. But he said, you need to start your own business. I've seen enough in you that says you can start your own business. Uh, and I did. So I started a leather finishing business, pretty dull and boring. Uh, and then I remember the Echo shoes used to go mouldy when they were made in Asia and shipped to the West. So if I could formulate something that stops shoes going mouldy, maybe I've got a product that's different to everybody else. And that was the start of Microfresh. Did you not worry, though, about losing that financial independence, especially given your upbringing? Uh, the short answer to that is no. And I hope it doesn't sound like a smart um, I can't say that word on camera, smart behind answer. <laughs> because I've never thought like that and I don't think like that now. And I think that's a natural trait in a lot of entrepreneurs that are from a similar background. Because we're from, you know, a relatively a modest upbringing, let's call it that, you're not scared of going back. So, yeah, I had a great career at Echo. I came back and I was actually skinned. Um, the money that I'd made in Echo ran out fairly quickly. And in my business, we had practically hardly any turnover for five years. Um, but I, I had a vision and I thought, if this comes off, then I'll have a combination of the financial security and the freedom. And I think freedom, again, is another trait that you'll see in my career that I do like freedom. Mm. <laughs> or you could call it a free spirit. So, you did it uh, for the, the free spirit rather than the financial independence. Yeah, and I think you'll find that with most entrepreneurs. I love the title of this series, you know, Entrepreneurs Unfiltered, because entrepreneurs like me are not doing it for the money. We just don't. Uh, my financial control is continuously telling me, you're not taking enough money out of this business. But in my eyes, you can only drive one car, you can only wear one watch. So I do it for the freedom and I, and I, I absolutely love what I do. So you bootstrapped the business in the early days. Um, what, were the, what was the sort of pivotal moment? How did you get the business off the ground? <laughs> okay, so there's a couple of pivotal moments. I want to call a couple of people out in this video. Don't worry, it's all good. So no one's going to be suing us. Uh, but back in 2010, so I'd been peddling Microfresh for three or four years, not really a lot of interest. We found out it stopped shoe smelling. And then a guy at Next, Robert Wright, um, he called me back because I'd been to pitch at Next and he said, I just want to check something out. How long does it last? And we did some tests. So we did some accelerated aging tests and it lasted minimum two years. So he came back and said, I want to launch a range of shoes called Microfresh. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so in 2011, Next launched a range of girl, back to school girl shoes with Microfresh. They sold like crazy because kids wear the same shoes every day. They're thrown away for two reasons. One is they grow out of them, or the other one is they start to smell. 
So next launch in 2011. Uh, and the other um, retailers followed suit because they do a thing called comp shopping. So they go around and see what other people are doing. They said, what's this microfresh thing? Wow. So within three or four years, we were in most back-to-school shoes in the UK. One so it was a real snowball moment. effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and the other, another pivotal moment, there's two more, but I'll try and keep them short and sweet for the sake of the podcast, is uh, John Lewis approached us in 2014 and said, if this product is as good as it seems, we'd like to launch a range of bedding. So that's what happened. They launched bedding in 2015. It was really successful and they launched baby and nursery bed in the year after. So the consumer and also other retailers said, this product must be good because it's on John Lewis, an aspirational retailer, baby and nursery. So you can imagine what sort of testing and approval we had to go through to get onto the thing next to the most precious thing in most people's lives. Uh, and then the third thing that was significant was, I'm not a business person. I'm a chemist that likes people. <laughs> and I realized that having a business creates a lot of pain. <laughs> uh, and a friend of mine mentioned the program called, this was the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, which I managed to get onto that in 2015, I think it was. And it rounds you as a person in business. So you learn about things that you don't want to do. Things like finance, things like why you're the leader, things like sustainability. It just makes you a more rounded business person so that when you're talking to your team and your customers and your suppliers and your partners, you're sounding a bit like you've got, you know what you're talking about. And that again, they're the three, the three main points that made us what we are today. Has that really helped you in terms of that short attention span and constantly getting bored? <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've still got the short attention span and I still constantly get bored. The difference is, I recognise that. And I think where there's things where you need people with a proper attention span or attention to detail, get people in. So you've talked about clinching those big name retailers and then diversifying um, your, your product. I'd love to know about some of the challenges you have faced as a black entrepreneur. You talked about racism growing up. Have you experienced that in the business world? Um, you know what? I, I'm actually going to turn that on its head because... I try and be objective. So let's just say we go for a pitch and we don't get the we don't get the contract. My first reaction is not it's not because I'm black. It's maybe our product's not good enough or it's too expensive or it's too cheap or there's something else. So racism in business, I can't say I've experienced it. In fact, it's worked the other way because people remember me. Um and you know, Rob will I, I can't say but Rob said, when, when, at next, back in 2011, when they talked about how can we innovate, Rob said, do you remember that guy that came in with that product, that antimicrobial? And they said, who's that? And he said, the smiley guy. And the obvious elephant in the room is that I'm black. <laughs> but he said, they all remember. And he said, the smiley guy. So it does, I think, being black can be an advantage. Um, and, you know, I always say to other black entrepreneurs, try to put your entrepreneur's word first before black. Um, yeah. So whether we've missed out on things because of my colour, I actually don't know. And I try not to think about it. And tell us a bit about how you survived through the pandemic and how you've innovated your way through the crisis. <laughs> hey, somebody put some obstacles in the road, right? Brexit, pandemic. Some big ones. Minister, you know, it's like, you know, just throw them all in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, in the, in the pandemic, which was awful. Uh, it was awful. Um, and lots of people... 
suffered and lost people and lost their lives. And it was, it was a truly awful scenario that most, nobody could have predicted. Nobody could have predicted that. Um, business wise, what happened with our business is the consumer knew the brand, especially parents, because we're on baby and nursery bedding and we're on kids footwear. So as some retailers said, actually, when we reopen, we want, rather than saying our stores have been, our stores have been disinfected or sanitized, which sounds like chemistry, chemicals. Uh, they said, we'd like to say the store's been microfreshed. It's a really friendly name. It's green. It's got all the credentials. It's British, you know, and I've got a medal from the Queen, uh, an OBE for the business. So we've got all the credentials. So what we realize is a, a massive string to our bow is microfreshing buildings, building interiors. So in Next, if you go into Next now, you'll see it says microfresh for your safety. And we're working with one of the big four accountants and with one of the big banks because as part of the return to work campaign, they want to say our offices are microfreshed. So we developed a fogging machine. You can microfresh a whole area. Uh, and we pivoted, although I hate that word, it's a bit corny. But we, yeah, so we made our offering available to a lot more companies and a lot more potential clients. I love the way you've become a verb. <laughs> so you're saying we've been microfreshed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and ironically, when when I did the Goldman Sachs program, one of the on the first module they said, "What's your aspirations?" And people talked about turnover with their business and whatever. And I stood there and I said, "I want us to be a verb, so that people say, have these offices been microfreshed? Has this cushion been microfreshed? Has this gym been microfreshed?" Uh, and we're getting there. We're getting. You're there. getting there. That's what yeah. clients are asking for now. <laughs> um, I mean, talking about. A crisis. I mean, obviously, we're in the midst of one right now in the UK. We're in the gri grips of the worst cost of living crisis since the 1950s. 14.4 million people living in poverty, including 4.3 million children. So what practical initiatives would you like to see from British businesses or the government to support the next generation of entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think what we're going through, Kate, is it, it's, it's unprecedented. Some, like, some days I wake up and I'm driving the car and I'm thinking, in a minute I'm going to wake up and this isn't really happening. Uh, it's it, it, it's tough on a scale that most people could never envisage. Um, entrepreneurship in the UK is is pretty high. We're third in the world for startups. I don't know if you know that. Um, but we're 13th for scale-ups. Now that gap is, I think, down primarily to... We find it very we find it very difficult to grow our businesses. There's not that much support in the form of independent support, so government support. I mean, now the government have launched Help to Grow, which is we we actually one of the featured businesses on that. But there is definitely a barrier between starting a business and scaling it. And um, I think that the the support that's out there is too difficult to navigate. It is. So if you're a high growth business, which is by definition, 20% turnover growth year on year or 20% staff, um, it's difficult to navigate that um, and that that um, that support. And I think the government needs to really find those businesses that are aspirational, that are going to grow the economy and going to create jobs and really get in there and help them. Because really that's, help those that, that's startups to scale up. That's right, yeah. I mean, do you think the business world is skewed in favour of those from wealthy backgrounds? Oh, without a doubt. 
absolutely. That is one thing that I will definitely stand by. If you're from, you know, my sort of background, it's tough. You don't grow up with the same aspirations. You don't grow up with the same connections. You know, I've made my connection from a very young age. Um, but if you're wealthy, which is, you know, you can't help being wealthy. It's great. Um, you have an advantage, definitely. And in the US, you know, the US has its problems, but they do do affirmative action when it comes to disadvantaged people growing the economy. So they have things in place like supply diversity, and it's it's mandated by the government. So if you supply the government in the US, 20% of your supplier spend has to be with minority businesses. And that means that the wealth does, I mean, trickle down is actually real over there. Over here, we kind of talk about it, but no one really puts the name to it. And I think that's something that the government should really look at because that would create a natural ecosystem of businesses growing from people like myself. Having some of those stronger diversity and inclusion targets in place. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not to say it's excluding people that are not diverse. It's just spreading the it's spreading the wealth, it's spreading the knowledge, it's spreading the ecosystem, it's spreading the contacts to say that we are all actually really the same rather than just talking about it. And in terms of spreading the knowledge, spreading the wealth, um, I'd love to know how you're giving back. Tell us a little bit about the Microfresh Foundation. Yeah, well, um, I managed to uh, I managed to navigate away from a potential um, adulthood that wouldn't have been pleasant. Let's just put it that way. Uh, a lot of my friends were not so fortunate, you could say, or not so proactive about getting out of where they're from. So I do have a the ones that are still there, and there's, there is a lot, don't get me wrong, but a lot of my friends have been to prison. Uh, some of them are not around anymore, and they've had really tough lives. So I recognise that in young kids, especially young black kids, um, we have, some of us don't have par uh, two parents, uh, and then your, your, your friends become your parents, and we've got to change that. So I do some work with a couple of schools, especially there's a school close by to here where they have excluded children, and spend time saying, hey, you know, what school did you go to? And then when they tell me the primary school they went to or the junior school, I say, I went there. And you can see their faces like, hey. And when I talk to them in everyday language like this, so I can even talk to them in my dialect, Jamaican dialect from my mum, which I won't do on camera. But they just say, wow, he looks and stuff. He's one of us. We can do that. And we need to stop doing all this other stuff. So I spend time in that school. I also spend time with youths, typically 16 to 20, which is the kind of sweet spot for drifting off the system or into the system, depending, you know, the, the, the criminal justice system. And again, talking to them in plain English to say, you don't need to do that. You know, you're in some ways you're acting how you're expected to act and you've got to stop that. So that's something that we do through the foundation. Um, and I know your mum still lives in the same house. Um, how do you feel when you go back there? <laughs> I go back to being a 12-year-old kid who does everything his mum says. So I act like <laughs> I'm 12 because that's what you do when you... Uh, yeah, but it's 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 bittersweet because driving around this area, um, it, it's weird to think I actually grew up around here, walking around the streets looking for things to steal, looking for cars that are open. You know, it's just how you did. You grew up, you thought, if somebody leaves a car open, they must be stupid. Uh, and to now drive around it, I make sure my car doors are locked. <laughs> because cr crime locked. rates are very high in Leicester, aren't they? They're much higher than the national average. 
They are, they are. And in Leicester, it is segregated. So I, mean, I, I don't mean, what I mean is you've got areas of Leicester. But it's a bit like US cities where you have areas of affluence and areas of, of social deprivation. So the crime rate on average across Leicester is, is, is higher than some of the cities that we think about. Um, but to answer your question about still being in the same area, it's, it's bittersweet because, of course, I like to see my mother, but then I do grow up and realise that some of the things that we grew up with as kids, which I now know are not correct, are in living, breathing in front of me. I mean, how, how did your mum cope with five kids doing it alone, growing up on the council estate? How did she make ends meet? Well, at one point, my mum had three jobs uh, and that's just what she did. And she always brought it up to say, nobody take a penny off this diet. <laughs> Which, uh, for those without subtitles, that means work and don't take benefits. You know, that's how we were brought up. So um, she had three jobs. My sister looked after us when my mum went to work. We all learned to cook and do things at a very young age. So when I left home, I could cook and look after myself completely. Um and a lot of discipline, which, you know, at the time you don't appreciate. But when you leave school, you realise that that was actually needed. Um, and I remember when I went to Denmark, the um, the the head of HR, who is now the vice president of ECHO, he said to me, you have impeccable manners. Uh, and I, to me, it's just normal, because if we ever stray from that line, my mother would let us know straight away with a you know, a bit of disciplinary action. Um, if everybody's got the time, listen to Grandma's Hands by Bill Withers, and that's exactly how we grew up. So you grew up with that real discipline and hard work ethic. Do you think you got that from your mother? Absolutely, without a doubt. I mean, that is trickle down, that's waterfall down. It's like, this is how it's going to be, and you're not, there's, you know, it's, there's, it's not debatable. <laughs> but she taught us, you know, and that's what made, us dif- made the difference. And give us a snapshot of Microfresh now and where growth is coming from. So Microfresh now, we've had uh, an absolutely crazy year, or should I say six months. Uh, we've now got, so we're in most retail stores, embedding footwear, as I've said. We're now going into um, the facilities management arena, hence I mentioned buildings. In the in February, we were in, I was in New York. We've got a US office. We have 13 offices around the world, by the way, in nine countries. So we've now opened in the US. We're on the NASDAQ Tower in New York in February, which was great because now US brands, it's a massive marketing edge for us to say to US brands, you want that name in your offices, you want that name on your clothing. So the big jumps for us are we the, the facilities management offering. So you can go into a workplace that's microfreshed and also US expansion. You want to crack the big nut that is the US. We want to crack the big nut that is the US. I've been there. I've been there three times this year uh, and we can do it. You know, we've got some good connections. We deal with some good companies over here that have US or we deal with, sorry, UK companies that have US branches. So that's easy to transfer. So we are going to crack the US. Absolutely. We're hoping to make Microfresh a global verb, not just a European verb. <laughs> <laughs> and then in terms of, practical tips that you would pass on to the next generation of entrepreneurs to for them to take their startups and scale them what would be your pieces of practical advice wow okay i know it sounds uh, corny but two of these one of these and that is listen when people say things in business 
I mean, the, 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 the consumer, the public watch The Apprentice and Dragon's Den and they get an idea of business, which is not correct because most people in business just want to help, even your competitors. So everybody wants to help everybody. So I would say to young entrepreneurs, talk to people, ask them to help you. Say, can you help me? That's one of my doctrines. I did a talk at De Montfort University and one of the students there sent me an email afterwards saying, can you help me? Lauren Robinson, her name was. She's now um, at Morrison's. But it got my attention because it's a doctrine. And I'll say that to young entrepreneurs. Always ask, say, can you help me? How can you help me get to the next level? But listen to people and also realise what you're good at, but more importantly, realise what you are rubbish at. And I'm rubbish at most things. And I get people around me to do those. What an amazing story. Thank you so much, Byron. Thank you, Kate. Great to see you again. To find out more about Byron, you can follow him on Twitter at ByronDixon5 and check out the Microfresh website. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. We'd love to know what you think, so please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe for more honest stories from Sound Advice Entrepreneurs Unfiltered.